Let us pray. God, you are wonderful and amazing, glorious and special. You are powerful and you love us deeply. We thank you that you are ever with us, that you help us to understand your word and you help us to know more about what you have for us to do as your people. And so be with us in this time, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I understand that the Chinese New Year just happened, and um, it's the year of the dog, yes. So, Gung Hai Fa Choi, Sun Nin Fai Lok, Sun Tai Gin Hong. So, from what I understand, that means I wish you prosperity, a happy new year, and a healthy body. So, God bless, and hopefully I didn't completely mess that up. <laughs> I did my best, right? Well, we are continuing in the book of Acts. Let us say together our theme verse. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. These words from Jesus to us to remember that we are indeed filled with God's Spirit and we are indeed called to be witnesses. There's a story of a minister who was giving a children's sermon and he had a shoe and he told the children there are three things that are similar to this shoe and us that help us as Christians to be better Christians. And so the first thing, he, he pointed at the eyes of the shoe and he said to the little kids... Does anyone know what these holes are called where you put the laces? One little girl raised her hand and she said, they're called the holes where you put the laces. <laughs> and all the children laughed and the minister smiled and he said, well, actually, they're called eyes. And we too have eyes and we need to use our eyes to look out and see who needs Jesus. And then he pointed to the tongue of the shoe and he said, this is called a tongue and we too have tongues and we need to use our tongues, not for bad, but to say good things, to see loving things to those people so that they would hear about the love of God. And then finally, he pointed to the sole of the shoe and he says, does anyone know what this is called? And one little boy raised his hand and he called on the little boy and he said, preacher, we all have bottoms. <laughs> And not only did the children laugh, but the whole congregation started laughing as well. But the minister quickly gathered himself and says, and that's right. And if we would get off our bottoms, we could go tell people about Jesus. And the whole congregation applauded. Well, this morning, we are continuing to talk about Paul and Barnabas in their travels. And hopefully we will learn about how we use our eyes to see and our tongues to speak and we will get off our bottoms and actually be those witnesses that we see Paul and Barnabas being. Acts 14, 1-2 starts off. When you see the yellow, please read with me. It says, At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jew Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So we see Paul and Barnabas having some success. Jews and Greeks believed after they preached their message. But in the midst of that, we're also told that there were some Jews who did not believe. 
They didn't receive the truth. Now, this shouldn't surprise us, because if you remember Jesus' parable of the soils, right? He talks about four different kinds of soils, liking it to the heart. And out of the four, only one kind of soil, one kind of heart, is ready to receive the message of Jesus and believe. So when you see people not believe, it's not surprising, because there are many whose hearts are not at a place where they can believe and receive and follow Jesus. But what is worse is that we're told not only did they not believe, but they went further than that. They stirred up the other Gentiles and they poisoned their minds so that they would not just not believe, but that they, they would turn against Paul and Barnabas. They were so opposed to this message for whatever reason, we're not told what they said to poison their minds, but whatever they did, it was very effective. And not only did they turn against the message, but they turned against Paul and Barnabas. See, those who do not want to believe will um, create an alternative teaching, a false teaching that undermines Jesus, that undermines the truth of the gospel. We see this happen today, don't we? People talk about being politically correct and that it's not right to just say that there is one Savior, one way to heaven. Or maybe they say, oh, you have to believe that we are one with the universe, and there's this, this spirit, this, this entity, this power that kind of joins us all together and works in and through us all. Or people teach that if you believe in God, God only wants good for you, and so you will prosper. And with God, you will have great success and great prosperity. And on and on and on, these alternate truths are lifted up. And they undermine the truth of the gospel. They undermine the truth of the scripture. They undermine the truth of the creator of this world, the one and true God. We understand the truth that we are sinners, fallen and weak. We cannot save ourselves. We need a savior, Jesus Christ, who can give us life, and can take away the penalty of our sin so that it does not have power over us and so that we can be free from the effects of sin. This was all given because of God's grace. I want to tell you about a couple stories of grace that I experienced. When I was in high school, I was a high school senior, and I took physics. I believed I needed to take physics so that it would help me get into college. Now, the problem with this is that the physics teacher was the chemistry teacher. And the chemistry teacher didn't really know anything about physics. But the school wanted to have a physics class, and he was the closest thing to a physics teacher. So our studies consisted of him giving us the book, telling us to read, and then giving us tests. Literally, I remember just sitting in class, and all we did was read the book, and then we would have our tests. Now, I struggled with physics, and I didn't understand it, but unfortunately, I didn't have a teacher who could help me understand it more. So at the end of the semester, I got a D minus. In fact, he said, you got a D minus by a micron. I really think I deserved an F, but I think he was showing me grace and letting me pass. I didn't take the class the second semester. <laughs> didn't want to risk it. But then I went to college. 
And I was a computer programming major in college. And so that first semester in college, I took a calculus class. Now, I'd never had calculus. In my high school, we only went up to what was called functional math analysis or pre-calculus. So I'm taking calculus. The first test comes, I get an A on the test. Wow, it was wonderful. Then the second test came. I didn't understand it as well. I thought I did OK, but I got an F on the test. Probably one of the only times I got an F ever, except in physics, right? <laughs> so now we're coming up to the third test, and I don't understand the material at all. And so I go and see the teacher. He doesn't help me at all. Now, the wonderful thing in college is there's called this grace period. There's a certain point in time that you can drop a class, and it doesn't count against you. But if you pass that point in the semester, then you have to carry out the class and get whatever grade you get. Well, this test was going to be just after that drop period. And so I thought, I don't want to risk it, and I dropped the class. Besides, I'd realized that I wanted to be a music major anyway and not a computer programming major. So I took advantage of the grace period, and I dropped the class. But these two experiences of grace don't even come close to comparing to God's grace. When I heard the message preached that Jesus loves me and that in Jesus I could have forgiveness of my sins and in Jesus I could have eternal life and in Jesus I could be a new creation and live this amazing, wonderful, spirit-filled life. The grace of God far surpasses any other kinds of grace I've ever experienced and changed my life forever. The key here is understanding how grace works. Because if you understand how grace works, then you begin to appreciate the grace that God shows to us, and you can really receive it fully. So let me give you a story, an illustration. Let's imagine, put yourself in this place that you are a judge. And as a judge, you exact punishment on those who come into your courtroom. Now, of course, you have the law to help to direct you and to guide you. And you have precedence that kind of helps you to know what kind of punishment you're supposed to give for each offense. And one day, this man comes into your courtroom. And he's disheveled, and he's worn down, and he begins to speak, and he says, I'm guilty. But then you recognize something. You realize that this person is an old friend of yours, someone who you were very close to, but you had gone your separate ways. You had lost touch with him. You had become a judge, and he had gotten into drugs, and this is his life here now. But you know that because he's guilty, you have to exact the punishment on him. And you know that he is going to have to pay a fine. And you see that he, there's no way he's going to be able to pay this fine. And so because of that, he is going to have to go to jail. You bring down your gavel, and you declare him guilty. And then you do something that surprises everyone. You walk down from the bench. You take off your robe. You walk over to the bailiff. You take out your checkbook. And you write the fine for your friend. That is grace. He did nothing to deserve it. He did nothing to earn it. He can't repay it. It is a gift of love from you to your friend because of the love that you feel for him, hoping that through this act of grace, you will give him a second chance at life. That 
is what God does for us. God must hold fast to his judgment, his judgment to what is right and holy. As a holy God, he can't let sinners into heaven because that would defile his holiness. And so he reaches out to us, knowing that if he doesn't give us this gift of grace, that we will have eternal separation from God. Eternal separation from love himself. And so we know this verse so well. Read it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he what? He gave his one and only Son for you and for me. For what purpose? Why would he do that? So that we would not perish, so that we would not be separated from him internally, but that we would have eternal life. This is God's gift of grace to us. Undeserved. We cannot earn it. We cannot repay him. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. When we understand grace and what a wonderful gift it is, and we believe it and we receive it and we accept it, we are then blessed by it. And we're told in Acts 14, verse 3, that Paul and Barnabas preached boldly this message of grace, and many believed because they heard, heard it. But there were many who were angered by this message, this message of grace. They were angered so much by this message of grace that they sought to stone Paul and Barnabas. And so they left Iconium, and they went to Lystra and Derbe. And here we read in verses 8 to 10, In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Now, at the healing of the man, it's really interesting because what we're told next in verse 11, look at this. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in a Laconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. They wanted to make Paul and Barnabas out to be gods. Now, Paul and Barnabas were only doing what they were being called to do. They were only showing the grace of God. They were giving a gift of healing to the man. The man didn't deserve it. The man didn't earn it. He couldn't pay it back in any way. But they were just giving him a gift of grace. But the people were turning that to mean that they were so powerful that they were gods. In fact, we're told that they called Bar Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. And they wanted to offer sacrifices on their behalf. Why? Because if someone's a god, you offer a sacrifice to them so that they'll be nice to you, right? So that they'll use their power to benefit you. And when Paul and Barnabas heard this, we, we heard the reading, they tore their clothes because they were grieving over this, right? A symbol of just grief, right? No, 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 no. We are not gods. They tore their clothes and they came running out to the people, telling them, 
We are only human. We are only messengers of God's. They are not God's themselves. They tell the people to turn away from these idols that are worthless and to turn away from the gods that they believe in, for they are powerless, and turn to the one true God who created all things. And then it says in verse 17, they're talking about God, the one true God, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills you with hearts of joy. It is important to understand that they were using what the people would understand, right? To teach them. There are people who believed in many gods. And they believed that these gods provided for what they needed. And so Paul was using that to say, it's not those gods who are providing what you need. It is the one true God, the God of all creation. He is the one who brings rain from heaven. And that rain from heaven waters your crops and provides the food that brings you joy. This is the God who you need to believe in. Important for us to understand that in every misunderstanding, in every wrong thought, in every wrong teaching, there is an opportunity to teach about the one true God. There's an opportunity to bring in the truth so that they will understand how they are misunderstanding who God is, and they can begin to know who the real God is, the God who sent Jesus to die for our sins. There's an opportunity to tell them about our testimony and to share the gospel and to be witnesses. So be aware of this. You might be having a conversation, and some of them may be way off in their theology, but don't just say, oh, what do I do, or I need to avoid this, or I need to walk away from this. Don't do that. Let that say to you, this is an opportunity for me to talk about Jesus. This is an opportunity for me to bring them into a more right understanding. But there's another lesson to be learned here. Even though, even Paul and Barnabas, who are probably two of the greatest evangelists of all time, weren't always successful in their preaching, were they? I mean, in both these cases, both in Iconium and now here, in Lystra, we see that there are people who are not believing. And so we see something going on here in verses 19 and 20. Then some of the Jews came from Antioch. Notice, where did they come? From Iconium. Antioch and Iconium. Remember, what did they want to do in Iconium to Paul and Barnabas? They wanted to stone them, remember? Now, they, they traveled all the way. They followed Paul and Barnabas from Iconium here to Lystra and Derby. And read this with me. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Wow. Not so good, right? I don't know if you and me, if we've suffered that, we might say, I'm done. I don't need any more of this. This is too difficult. This is too hard, Right? We don't always see people believe when we preach the gospel, when we share our testimony, when we are witnesses. We don't always see that happen, and that's okay. God is still with us, and God will direct us to the next place we need to be. But sometimes we do see people believe, and that's important. 
But it's important to remember that when we do see people believe, just giving our testimony, just giving our witness, that's not enough. We must be there for people to help disciple them, to help teach them, to bring them into a Bible study, to help them understand more. Because if we leave new Christians without the proper tools in this battle that we face when we become Christians, without the proper defenses, then we will leave them to a very difficult fate. Paul and Barnabas, in the last chapter of chapter 14, it's really interesting because they retrace their steps and they go back to these cities that they had been in to help strengthen the new believers in those cities. And they're going to strengthen them in four ways. Encouragement, teaching, prayer. Oh, I got too far. Encouragement, teaching, organization, and prayer. So, first of all, encouragement. Even though many believed in those cities, you have to understand that those cities were really pagan communities and very hostile to Christians. So first and foremost, Paul and Barnabas were encouraging them, the decision you made, that's a good decision. That was the right decision. They were encouraging them in their faith. They were encouraging them in, in their belief. They were encouraging them to stay strong in what they believed, that they made the right decision. You know, it's easy to get bombarded by non-Christians, by those who don't believe, to try to pull you back into your old lifestyle, to get you to live the way you lived before you were a Christian. Why are you living that way? Why are you being so elitist? No, you need to be like us. You need to be like everyone else. You not don't be different. And they try to pull you back into that old way of living. We must encourage new believers to surround themselves with Christian friends and Christian influences. We must encourage them to stay strong in the Lord and that the grace they received at, in salvation and receiving that salvation will continue to be with them and God's blessing them as they live faithfully for him. But next, we talk about teaching. They gave them teaching. Acts 14, 22, read the yellow with me. Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. See, we need to make sure that we and others know what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does it mean not only for Jesus to save us, when, but that also we need to confess our sins when we sin so that we would continually receive this forgiveness? And what does it mean for us to overcome the temptations that come to us? But it is equally important for us to teach that as Christians, it will not be easy to live as a Christ follower. He said, there are many hardships that you will experience. You know, see, for a lot of Christians, when they start to experience these hardships, they get a little nervous, they get a little scared, they get a little frustrated, and they want to just fall back into their old way of life. We need to teach that there are hardships in the Christian faith. Just believing in Jesus doesn't make all your struggles go away. Believing in Jesus doesn't make everything perfect in your life. You're still going to be living in this world that's going to bring hardships and troubles and challenges. And we need to endure through them. To live for Jesus takes commitment and determination. Third, 
They brought organization and structure to the church. Read that with me. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. They appointed elders. They brought leadership into the church. They knew that if they did not have leaders in the church, the church would fall into confusion and have a lack of direction and that they would be weak and easily attacked by the pagan culture. And so they set aside elders to give direction and to give encouragement to the people in the church just as those leaders had received encouragement from Paul and Barnabas. And lastly, there was prayer. With prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Remember last week, what did we talk about? Prayer and fasting, didn't we? Here is another verse that puts prayer and fasting together. Paul and Barnabas prayed and fasted to have a deep connection with God as they were lifting up these believers, this new church, these new leaders, these new believers to the Lord with prayer and fasting and asking God to watch over them, protect them, to guide them, and keep them strong in the faith. We, too, need to be praying for one another with prayer and with fasting because it draws us into that deeper relationship with God, a deeper focus. Fasting brings you into a deeper focus of prayer to help you to remember. Maybe you're fasting during the day and there's a particular person that God has put on your mind. And because you're fasting, you're constantly, your hunger pains are reminding you, pray for that person, pray for that person, pray for that person. And you're in this deep commitment to prayer to lifting up the believers who need strength in the Lord. One of the things you need to know about me, I don't know if you need to know about me, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. And that is, Calvin and Hobbes is probably my favorite comic strip. In fact, one of the gifts I got one time was the complete anthology of Calvin and Hobbes in hardback. And so, man, this is great. So anyway, I'm going to share with you a Calvin and Hobbes comic strip right now. So, Calvin is a six-year-old boy. If you don't know the comic strip, he's a precocious six-year-old boy, and he has a stuffed tiger whose name is Hobbes. And to Calvin, Hobbes is real. And so he has these real conversations with Hobbes. And so in this particular comic strip, uh, Calvin is doing a math problem. And so he reads this problem out loud. It says, a bushel is a unit of weight equal to four pecks. And then he looks over at Hobbes and he says, what's a peck? And Hobbes quickly says, a quick smooch. <laughs> and then in the next frame, they're both kind of staring at the math problem. And finally, Calvin says, you know, I don't understand math at all. <laughs> right? I mean, you got a peck, right? How is a bushel and a peck related if a peck is a quick smooch, right? Well, you know, as Calvin didn't understand his math, sometimes people have a real difficulty understanding grace. People think that grace is too easy, right? It's just given for nothing. That's too easy. It doesn't seem right. Or maybe it's too confusing because grace is given by a holy God to a sinful creation. But the truth is, grace is not difficult to understand. Grace is easy to understand. God loves us so much that he doesn't want us to be lost in our sin. And because he doesn't want us to be lost in our sin, he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross 
to pay the penalty for our sins for us so that we don't have to pay that penalty. And in Christ, through faith in Christ, we have salvation. We have new life. We are transformed into being Christ followers, to being holy in the Lord, and to be able to love one another more deeply, to live our purpose of our life better, and to truly prepare ourselves to live with God in heaven for eternity. Let's pray.